Boy, if, new, if you're new and you're visiting, you might, I just might have set you up for a big letdown. That was whew, a little bit of pressure. Thank you, Jenny. That's very sweet. Uh, I'm really privileged to have the opportunity to share with you tonight. I love Christmas, I think like a lot of people do. Um, when I was a child, I loved Christmas, motivated by the noble desire to see as many people as possible give me presents. I think that we can relate to that as we were kids. As I've gotten older, though, I have fallen more and more in love with this season because I've seen the implications of what Christmas has meant for my life, for my family, and for everyone around me. So I am really happy to discuss Christmas with you tonight. I put up uh, a picture of probably my favorite Christmas <laughs> because what more could a nine-year-old need? New slippers, corduroys, a sharp blouse, and a 22 caliber rifle. Life was good. But one thing this reminds me of, the uh, reason I put that up there, is before our Christmas morning, what precedes these fashionable photos that we have from our upbringing was a reading of the Christmas narrative that we always did uh, the night before as a family. So I don't know if that's your experience. Maybe this is sort of the first time for that, or maybe you can um, share in that experience. But I want you to pretend that you are in your cozy Christmas pajamas, not the pants that are a bit too tight or the, the stiff blouse that you felt you had to wear to an event like this tonight, but pretend you're in your Christmas jammies and we're gonna take about five minutes and we're gonna read through the narrative. There's more to it on either side, but we are gonna just make sure we go through that. And then from that, I wanna share with you four observations about God's interaction with humanity. Before we do that, I just wanna mention one other thing. I'm gonna quote a couple historians regarding the authenticity or the authority of the New Testament because that's what we're looking at, this part of the Bible. E.M. Blakelock, professor of classics at Auckland University says, I claim to be an historian. My approach to classics is historical. And I tell you that the evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of ancient history. And one more, Clark Pinnock of McMaster University says, there exists no document from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent a set of textual and historical testimonies. Skepticisms regarding the historical credentials of Christianity is based upon an irrational bias. And I tell you that so you can appreciate that when we are approaching this it's, we're, it's a historical account, and we can have intellectual confidence that we're not trying to establish worldviews from some kind of unreliable fiction, but from what God says is his authoritative word to humanity, and what foremost historians and scholars say is incredibly reliable literature. So with that said, get comfy, and I'm going to read to you of the birth of Jesus Christ. I'm going to be going back and forth a little between the Gospel of Matthew and of Luke. There'll be a little bit of overlap, but we want to get all the pieces. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Backing up just a little. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house in the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And to get another picture of one other group of visitors. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, and assembled the chief priests and the scribes and the people. He acquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring word to me that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. 
There's a few things I want to show you about God's interaction with humanity because that's what this is a story of. The first thing, and we're going to do this by, by looking at his invitations to the shepherds and the wise men. The first thing we see is that God's invitation to humanity was inclusive. He does a bit of show and tell, or we could say maybe he tells and then he shows. He tells through the angels, he tells the shepherds, fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And from the social experience of the shepherds, this would have been striking because there probably wasn't a lot in society that they got to be a part of. So God goes and he shows this in a couple ways. First, he shows it by the uniqueness or the difference of these two sets of visitors that came. They run the entire social spectrum. We have passive shepherds sitting in a field not really looking for anything, and then we have a group that are passionately and intentionally seeking. We have a poor group. We have a wealthy group. We have Jews and we have Gentiles. We have uneducated and we have the very scholarly. So we can look at these as outlying bookends, social bookends, and in between that, there's room for so many people. He also shows this inclusive invitation by the location he chose for Jesus Christ to be born and enter the world. Sometimes we inadvertently view Mary and Jesus Christ as unfortunate victims of a city's politically induced housing shortage. As if it was an accident that the savior of the world had to be born in a stable. But I want to suggest to you that sympathy isn't really the emotion that this event should be evoking, as, as well-meaning as that emotion has been for all of these years. If we really look at it properly, it should evoke awe and gratitude because so many things had to be just so for this event to unfold as it did and to at the same time fulfill multiple prophecies of things that had been written between 700 and 1400 BC, things that came true through the events. When we look at this narrative, we see God exercise authority over the plans of human beings, of chance, of governments, of human conception, of timing, and the physical universe. So a logical understanding of God's sovereignty means that the stable was not an accident. It was not an accident in this chaotic political climate. It was not an oversight by a god too busy arranging the choir that he forgot to make a reservation. We are talking about a god that has placed the earth at the exact distance from the sun to sustain human life, and too much one way or the other, we would freeze or we would burn up. We are talking about a God who can load three billion base pairs of DNA into every one of the 37.2 trillion cells that make up the average human body. We had better believe he could have arranged a hotel room. But he didn't. And so we should take a minute to marvel at that strategy. If Jesus had been born in a palace, the words given to the shepherds would have meant nothing. What do you mean for all people? There is no way they could have gotten in there. If he had been born in a temple, the wise men couldn't have gotten past the court of Gentiles. The shepherds might have gotten a little further as Jews if they were ceremonially clean, which they might not have been considering their occupation. 
And it, could you imagine if they marched up to the religious elite and said, God has sent an invitation to us, poor shepherds or pagan astrologers, do you think that the religious elite would have believed that that invitation came to them and not the ones in the temple? I don't think they would have been getting in there. Or even in an inn, if there was room in the inn, they would have been in small private quarters. These are not like the hotels that we're used to. It's doubtful that they would have had a hospitality suite that they could have rented to host a baby shower. And it's also doubtful that the proprietor of this, this uh, hotel, this inn, would have welcomed a bunch of scruffy shepherds into his already overcrowded establishment at night to wander up and go visit the strange lady they don't know, uninvited, who just had a baby. So, when God arranged his guest list, and when God arranged the location of his birth, he made good on his announcement that God's coming to earth was going to be good news for all people. Secondly, God's invitation to humanity was personal. Let's start with the wise men. These were magi from Persia or Babylon. These are men who would engage in astrology, the study of sacred writings, pursuit of wisdom and magic. And this is what we see in Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. How many of you would notice if there was a new star in the sky? I wouldn't notice that. There are not many people who would probably notice that, and back in that time, certainly not the common folks. There was not many who would have studied astronomy enough to notice a variation in the cosmos. There's not many who would have had enough exposure to other cultures to realize that it could mean something, and if it did mean something, what they should do about it. And there's very few who would have had the financial means to travel long distances to go check this out. But the wise men did. So God drew them with a sign they understood in a way that engaged who they were and in a way that did not surpass the intellectual or the material resources they had to respond. Now, if God had given the star to the shepherds, it's doubtful that they would have gotten there. Now, the star had probably rose at this point because the wise men said this marked his birth and that's what they came for, they saw that. But he didn't give that sign to the shepherds. Instead, let's see what he says to them. It was something totally different in Luke 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So there's this beautiful phrase that we see for the shepherds. This is a sign for you, not the star. They get their own one. And then we see a number of things in this invitation or this message that show God's careful concern for a totally different station of life that the shepherds possess compared to the wise men. First of all, they were told the message which was good because it's unlikely that any shepherds at that time were literate. That would have been a problem if they had to look through scrolls and charts and read maps and try to figure out where to go. 
And even if they were literate, they didn't have access to the scriptures, even if they were God-fearing. It's not like nowadays with Gideon's handing out Bibles, there weren't people out there handing out pocket scrolls so that the common people had access to this. They were also given same-day news. They said, born this day which is good because based on the class of people who held this vocation, they probably weren't men of discipline to be able to carry out a visit that would happen much later. Now they might have lost the invitation by then. Some of us have done that. They were also given a familiar and close location. They were told in the city of David. Well, that's great. They were Jewish. They knew about David. He was the darling king of Israel. So they knew that the city of David was Bethlehem. They'd heard it called that since they were little. And the bonus was it wasn't that far away. It says they were in the same region, which is good because they didn't have the means to travel very far. Traveling takes money, and they were not financially independent enough to take off for months or a year and travel. They didn't have labor laws to ensure that if they took a leave of absence, that when they came back, their job would be there. So it was bonus that it was familiar and it was close. And then they were given this familiar, simple, and obvious sign. For the familiar part was that it was a manger. Well, they deal with livestock. This was a familiar thing in their line of work. And being shepherds, they knew where to find such a thing. Because if you're a drunk, you know where the taverns are. If you're a merchant, you know where the markets are. And if you're a shepherd, you'd know where the stables are. So they knew where to find that. And there weren't many in Bethlehem because it was small. It was also simple because the sign was a baby. That's pretty easy. And then it was even simpler or more unique because it was a baby in a food trough. This is a new one. This probably wasn't trending nursery decor in Pinterest back then. So it was unlikely that they would go and then mistake baby Elias in the manger down the road for baby Jesus in this manger, right? Very unlikely because this is a very unusual and unique sign they were given. So just like with the wise men, God graciously drew the shepherds, but with a sign that they understood and in a way that engaged who they were, and in a way that didn't surpass the intellectual or financial resources that they had to respond. Now, if you permit me a little tangent, I'm gonna promise to bring this back to show you how it relates. In life, we have two major options for choosing to answer life's big question of where did I come from? I can believe that we started billions of years ago as random bits of matter and sludge, and then contrary to scientific laws and what we observe in reality, believe that left to itself and some cosmic bumper cars, it just happened towards this orderly, complex, and beautiful thing that we see as the world, our universe, the human body. Even though that belief defies logic, it's wildly popular, and I believe that's because it comes with no moral strings attached. No creator means no accountability. I can be my own God, and I can live exactly as I please. But if that is what I believe, to be consistent in my own thinking, it necessarily means I have to embrace the devastating reality that I do not matter at all. Because if I am an accident of chance, I have no inherent value or purpose. You cannot believe one part of that without believing the other. On the flip side, if I choose to believe that my life has value 
because it was intentionally fashioned by a loving creator. It does pose some moral obligations, which we'll talk about later, but it means that the same God who has the power to create our galaxy and put four billion stars into it and then go on to create between one and 200 billion galaxies is the same God who intentionally knit us together in our mother's womb, the book of Psalms says. He's the same God who created us on purpose for specific purposes, the book of Ephesians says. It's the same God who says he knows the number of hairs on our head, it says in the book of Matthew. And it also says that he loved us so much that he was willing to die at the hands of his creation on the cross to pay for our sin so we wouldn't have to, to give us the opportunity to be forgiven and to be in right relationship with him even though we never earned it or deserves it. It says that in the book of John. Self-esteem issues? I don't think so. Confidence issues? I don't think so. Not if this is the God that loves me. Not if my life has this purpose. Not if I know that my life has a contributing role in the ongoing rescue of humanity. So what does God's personal call of the shepherds and the wise men have to do with all that? In living color, it confirms what God says everywhere else in the Bible, that he planned us, he knows us, he sees us, he loves us, and he will use that intimate knowledge of who we are to draw us in a way that we can relate to and in a way that we can find him. Which brings us to our next point. God can use anything to direct people to the Savior. Let's look at how the two groups were directed. We had the shepherds getting this wonderful angelic announcement. It was simple, it was quick, it was lovely, it was pleasantly memorable. Some people are drawn to Jesus Christ by beautiful things in their life. Maybe it's that living, breathing example of a spiritual extreme makeover, that person in your life who you have seen become someone entirely new and exciting and better, and God has done something in their heart that you could never have imagined. Sometimes we see that, and that draws us. Maybe it's that song or that book or that sermon that make you cry every time you hear it because it just seems to awaken a truth in you that you can't explain. Or maybe, like I had one of these even this week, it's that breathtaking moment in nature where you just stop and something wells up inside of you and it just screams, this is not by accident and I need someone to thank. Sometimes those are the things that draw us to Jesus Christ. And then for others, the journey might not be as easy. The wise men, though they had a good start with their, their learning and their literature and their maps, they had to study, they had to think, they had to search, they had to plan, and they had to pack. And their journey was long, and the travel realities of that point in history meant that that whole trip was not a picnic. But did you catch who directed the wise men to the final leg of their journey? See, because up until that, that point, they didn't have all the pieces of the puzzle. We were a little mistaken sometimes in our thinking that the, the star was moving and they were following it. What likely happened was they saw the star, 
And then, if any of you know some bits of history, a lot of, or most of Israel was taken into captivity in Babylon in 600 BC. So there would have been a lot of Jewish population in Babylon. And so what these Magi did is they would sit around and they would talk and they would discuss each other's sacred writings. So at this point, there would have been a large Jewish contingent still in that area. So it's likely that they were made familiar with the prophecy back in Numbers 24, verse 17, written over 1,400 years earlier. And it said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So they recognized that a star rising from this passage would have meant maybe a king in Israel. So they said, well, let's go to the capital city. So they went to Jerusalem. But what did they have to do in Jerusalem? They had to stop and ask around. And then as they're asking around, King Herod catches wind of this. He's not very happy about this for obvious reasons. So he calls the chief priests and the scribes, and he says, tell me where this is supposed to happen. And they tell him, based on a passage in Micah, this is going to happen in Bethlehem. So he calls the wise men, and who sends the wise men to Bethlehem? Herod, the half-Jew, Roman-appointed, jealous, paranoid, murderous King Herod is who God uses to direct the wise men for the last bit of the way. This is a man who killed one of his wives, his mother-in-law, and at least three of his sons because they were a threat to his throne. And this is the man who would go on to kill every Jewish male, toddler and infant under the age of two in Bethlehem and the surrounding region because the wise men didn't report back and he had to wipe out this king. If God could use wicked King Herod to help seeking men find the savior of the world. He can and often does use even the wicked things that we experience in this world to bring us to him. Sometimes it's not until we know the despair of feeling hopelessly lost that we're actually ready to be found. Sometimes it's not until we realize that we're actually enslaved to the things we thought were our expression of freedom that we're then actually ready to be free. And sometimes it's not even until we suffer at the hand of someone else's godless behavior that we're aware that God's ways are beautiful and right and we would like to submit to those. my sheep. For some of us, God will use angels and stars, but sometimes he uses long journeys and hard-seeking and difficult things, but ultimately it won't matter because it reveals our need for him and how to find him. Brings us to our last point. We don't need to be religious. We just need to respond. If you want to note something incredible in this account, note the reaction of the chief priests and the scribes. Remember how Herod called them in? Of everyone in this account, they knew where to find the information. They had access to the city where the Messiah was going to be born. They knew that wealthy, educated, imperial-type men, believing this to be a fulfillment of this messianic prophecy, had traveled approximately 800 miles to come see it, but they didn't trouble themselves for a six-mile trip. 
external compliance to a set of religious rules gets you nowhere. Not terribly unlike Herod, these religious folks were so busy building their own religious kingdom that they missed God's. And here is where we need to understand that we can only meet the moral obligation that God has for us as his creation because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, not our own works, not our own religion. Do you know what he did at the cross? There's big fancy theological words for this, but I'll just say it like this. We had a sin debt that we cannot pay, and God is infinite goodness. At this point of the cross, when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he said, I will take the debt on your record, and I am going to credit that to my account, and then I will pay for it. But I will also take my goodness and my righteousness, and he credits it to our account. That's how we can be right with God, not because of anything we do, none of our religious pursuits. God doesn't save good people. God saves sinners, and then he makes them good. So if you are not the religious sort, or you've never darkened the door of a church before tonight, you are in good shape, because all we need to know is that we need, and then we can respond. The Bible is full, I just love seeing them, full of beautiful before and after imagery that describes this salvation that God offers. He tells us that we go from lost to found, from blind to seeing, from enemy to friend, from slave to free, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, from dirty to clean, from strangers to citizens, from orphaned to adopted, from declared guilty to being pardoned. And in all of those before situations, we are hopeless to help ourselves. God is making that abundantly clear. All we can do is respond to the one who rescued us. The wise men and the shepherds weren't asked to clean anything up before they came. They were invited to see a king, and they were invited to see a savior, and they responded. As I've been anticipating this event, I've been praying for you all who would be coming. And I've prayed that as you would go out of here, every time you would see a plastic shepherd or wise man on someone's lawn, or every time you would see a baby in a feed box on a Christmas card, or every time you'd walk by the $14.99 star at HomeSense, you would be reminded that you are included, you are personally invited according to God's love for you, his intimate knowledge of you, and all you need to do is respond. And that's why we love Christmas. It is a Merry Christmas indeed. I'm going to ask Taylor to come up. She's going to sing something for us. And uh, just take that as a time to respond and think about what we've talked about. And then we're going to sing one more song together and enjoy our time.